Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, what will culture be like in the next decade? We explore the Serpentine Gallery's new report into future art ecosystems. After four months in which galleries have wrestled with digital programming because of the coronavirus pandemic, I talked to Ben Vickers, the Serpentine Gallery's Chief Technology Officer, about the tech industry as art patrons, art stacks and 21st century cultural infrastructure. Also this week we hear from a historian marooned in Trump's America as he yearns for a sunlit morning on the Thames in London. Simon Sharma tells us about his love for JMW Turner's Mortlake Terrace early summer morning in this episode's Work of the Week. And as unemployment in the United States surges past Great Depression-era levels, we look at a historic cultural programme that may have pointers for this moment, the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, or CETA, a response to the economic crisis of the 1970s. Before all that, we'd like to tell you about a new newsletter from the art newspaper. Under lockdown, we created a book club where you can join us to read features, exclusive extracts and author interviews, and view image galleries and Art World figures reading lists. Every month we have live events on Instagram and a newsletter. You can sign up by going to theartnewspaper.com and clicking on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. You can sign up for our other newsletters while you're there. Now, the Serpentine Galleries this month published the inaugural edition of Future Art Ecosystems, which it describes as an annual strategic briefing for practitioners and organisations with an interest in the development of future art ecosystems. The first issue is about the new infrastructures being built around artistic practices that engage with advanced technologies and incorporate studies of the Serpentine Galleries programme of digital commissions over recent years, working with artists like Hito Steyl, Ian Cheng and Cecil B. Evans. I spoke to Ben Vickers, the Serpentine's Chief Technology Officer, one of the authors of the report and a central figure in curating and developing digital and online art in the UK and beyond over the last decade. Ben, we've been in this situation where suddenly cultural organisations across the world were forced not to have physical spaces and enter into the digital realm in a very meaningful way, even if they hadn't necessarily prepared to. Firstly, how do you think they responded and also... How has that made you now reflect on this report? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is we we made the decision to delay the report. It was actually meant to launch on the day that we locked down in the UK. And at the time, that felt like um, a real problem. But what's interesting, having launched it now at the beginning of July, is that many of the issues that we were raising had become like the central issues that institutions were facing. Um, And already in the report, we were asking questions of like, what does it mean to produce a museum that doesn't have an exhibition space? In terms of how I think that people have handled it, um, I mean, I think it's been a a huge challenge. And one of the issues that we raise in the report is there's been this kind of systemic underinvestment and underthinking of this area. So I think that it's been very, very difficult for institutions to adapt. And I think Another area that we identified was that when you go online, you're suddenly competing with all these other areas, whether it's video games, Netflix, etc. And that's a great challenge. So I don't think that the challenge has been met particularly well. 
but I think that it has promoted this like sense of urgency and kind of um, awareness of the existential risk in not taking these issues on. I think one of the crucial factors is that so much of the kind of stuff that's been online has been about real world stuff which has been digitised as opposed to born digital stuff. So the the key thing, the crux of this report is about art and advanced technologies, which you call AXAT. So tell us what is AXAT and, and what is it that you're trying to get at through this report about it? So I think the thing that we're specifically interested in is we've had a kind of wave of disruption as a result of the internet to the way in which culture is produced and how it's distributed. But what we've observed and what we've been focused on at the Serpentine over the last four or five years is that there's several of these waves coming, um, whether it be augmented reality, VR, blockchain, AI, etc. And all of these in themselves have hugely disruptive potential. And many artists are working with these technologies and producing works that have the potential for their own systems of distribution that in many ways can shortcut uh, the traditional systems of art. So what we're focused on is how can the art field as a kind of systemic whole engage in this subject and play like a part? Because we feel that if it doesn't, then many of these decisions are going to be made for it. So specifically, we're talking about the art industry. That's right. So tell us, what, what, how do you define what the art industry is? So I guess that what we're focused on is the kind of back-end processes of the art world. And I think this, this applies to more than just the role of art and technology. It applies to the fact that over the course of the last decade, in particular, there's a, been a kind of divergence between the way that the back-end processes of institutions and the art world functions and the systems it uses versus the kind of content and the thematic and discursive subject matter that it's interested in. And so we see through an engagement of art and advanced technology that it can begin to kind of grapple with these problems in a way that's like native to that, but also is kind of upstream of the long-term ramifications. And that's something that we think is really critical and, and in many ways is being driven by artists, but also artists that are kind of outliers and have different concepts about what an artist is, um, how artists can work together. Um, we cite the example of Team Lab, which is a very, very interesting example in that they are more akin to some kind of corporation than they are like a traditional artist collective or an individual artist studio. Uh, but as a result of embracing these kinds of things, have managed to uh, produce a very high degree of autonomy. And we think that that has very significant implications. One of the things that I was really struck by was this idea that, and you define it quite early in the report, which is that art and advanced technology sits neither in the art field nor in the technology field. It's in this kind of interesting interstitial space. And, and would you argue that that is both a good thing, like a, it's like a productive thing, but it has potential implications, which, as you say, may ultimately deny um, sort of a cultural significance to a certain degree to, to some of this material? I think when I started my work at the Serpentine about seven years ago, I never thought that the museum or the arts institution could be truly disrupted. And I have to say that in the last couple of years, I've changed that opinion. Um, because there has been a slow embrace. And in that time, 
all of these other areas have like come into being. And it's actually, I think it's more as a result of the disruption of other fields. So like people aren't sure what the future of entertainment is. And so when you have people that are operating in this space, there's a sort of cross between art, theatre, technology, etc. You see this like very strange emergence of a kind of new field that has the potential to take the place of new forms of entertainment. And that therefore can draw in enormous types of investments and entirely new financial models. And I think that that is one of the areas that should be considered like a major threat right now, because it's clear that the art field is in crisis in more than one way. Um, whether it's, you know, there's going to be a limited amount of people coming through doors. Um, it's going to be a complete shift in governmental funding, financial crisis that's going to wipe out the middle tier of the the, get, the commercial gallery system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's inevitable that there are kind of latent or dormant or underused systems that are being devised and emerging now that will fill that place. Because at the end of the day, people need to devise some form of economic system or way of reorganizing resources in order to realize works. And it's, I think it's becoming obvious to artists that there are different ways of doing that and giving over like, you know, 50% of your um, sales to what is essentially a kind of administrative supportive body is not going to work and there are also the model isn't working for commercial galleries so what we see in this field emerging really kind of applies to everything so it's like new ip models it's new ways of doing kind of light startup models that redistribute the income from artworks to artists in a very different way. And we're seeing lots of those experiments play out. But really, it's going to be necessity that drives it. The, in a way, the kind of crux for me of the, of the report comes in that final section where you look at what future art ecosystems might be. And it seems to me the most significant one of those and the, the one that relates most to what you're talking about is what you call... Uh, 21st century cultural infrastructure because you define team lab for instance as a, as a form of art stack which is this alternative but quite commercial and entertainment driven model and then you and then you have the kind of tech tech companies as patron which comes with it all sorts of problematic elements into which which are ongoing debates about cultural sponsorship and apart from anything else limitations on uh, accessibility and all that stuff so tell us about this idea of the 21st century cultural infrastructure and how it how it operates as a kind of future model of how art might exist well i think there are a number of very interesting ideas emerging right now and when i think of 21st century infrastructure it's not necessarily that there is like concrete examples that you can say this is the shape that it's going to take, but there are different kinds of potentials. So if you look at things like, say, Little Michaela, the 3D avatar um, orchestrated by a studio of like 40 or 50 people, in many ways that comes from like, you know, Anne Lee artist projects is definitely informed by those things, but also in its construction and its business model, it presents a completely different kind of model of way, a way that an artist could make work in the world and distribute it um, and intervenes in, in kind of media uh, economies and attention economies in a very, in a, in a way that hasn't existed before, both in developing technology for delivering that type of work, 
um, but also creating entirely new platforms for people to experience it. Um, there are other ideas that are kind of circulating right now. The idea of kind of headless brands. So blockchain creates the possibility for multiple people to be responsible for one organization and be able to vote on it. And I think, you know, in the next couple of years, we're going to see things that are sort of akin to like the artist pension trust, um, but are orchestrated because the cost of administrating and cooperating as a group is vastly reduced. And so I think that that will open up all types, all kinds of new artist collectives. Um, and I think that that really represents what, you know, 21st century arts infrastructure can mean. Um, it means artists will have greater autonomy, that resources can potentially be uh, more vastly distributed. Uh, but it also means artists going directly um, to their audiences um, and bypassing institutions. So institutions really are in a moment, it, you know, it's really for institutions to think, what is our role in this? Um, where are we going to position ourselves? How are we going to support artists in the future if the primary way of supporting an artist is not through an exhibition space? Um, and that, I think, is a very interesting question. And you're seeing it kind of it's being raised across the art field right now. Um, and it's one that I think will have many, many different answers before there's a kind of normalized way of working. I think the other thing that I would say on that is. I think that 21st century infrastructure has a particular disposition towards decentralization and fragmentation. So I think particularly over the last couple of decades, we've understood that there's this kind of singular general public um, that the museum is for. And, th and that's very much like part of its history in terms of like enlightenment ideas around knowledge. Um, I think that that very model is also being very disrupted because of the way that people are building communities, the fact that actually the kind of trajectory of the internet is more towards kind of smaller gated communities or semi-porous communities, um, people developing, you know, online subscription models around the way that they produce content, etc. So I think that we're going to have really this kind of patchwork of, of, of different approaches um, and different audiences. Where does it leave something like the Serpentine, though? Because I'm, I'm sort of quite interested. You have been pioneering these online commissions, which exist entirely in online space or perhaps in an app. And I'm wondering if you can perceive or you have evidence of diff of those different audiences that you're talking about accessing those and perhaps not accessing the gallery. So, for instance, do your online projects attract a, an, an infinitely more international audience than you could ever get in a physical space? But also, I don't just mean about um, geographies. I mean about people who who are accessing this form of art that might not access painting, sculpture, and even gallery-based things like video and, you know, sort of new time-based technologies? I guess in many ways that the Serpentine is like something of a special case. Um, and I think that it, it, within its own DNA, it has this like very high level of agility. Um, it could be very responsive, etc. So I think it's very like well-positioned and prepared for taking on some of these issues that are coming thick and fast. Um, in terms of what I think the role of an institution such as Serpentine or others would be in this moment, I think the opportunity is in something kind of akin to a, like an, an embassy model. So this zone where people that are coming from different disciplines, different backgrounds, different professions and industries can kind of convene. And 
part of that kind of convening process, I think, comes from the brokerage of new types of partnership. So I think the the kind of canonical example for us in recent years was the collaboration that we did with uh, the K-pop band BTS. And what was amazing doing that project was that by working with BTS, they were able to extend the work to their audience and it brought an entirely different group of people that would traditionally come to the Serpentine. But that then produces like very unlikely outcomes. And just, you know, kind of reading the commentary online on Twitter and engaging with various K-pop fans was totally different to any kind of experience that we've had producing an artwork before. And there was a, there was a kind of much deeper, richer engagement around the artist and people were quite comfortable from the K-pop army reaching out to Jakob Kudstinson, who produced the work directly. Um, so I think f- certainly for us, we do think that it's about finding these kind of uncanny, unlikely alliances between kind of spheres of knowledge and and different kinds of practices and um, across the world in order to produce completely new types of community. And I think that that is... That's a kind of exciting future for the institution, I think, not to be kind of just located within its existing community and to only work for, you know, a a somewhat undefined general public. The other thing that I would say that I think is really important for institutions right now, and this particularly relates to all of the issues that are being raised as a result of technology, is that various technologies, whether it be uh, synthetic biology Uh, blockchain, artificial intelligence, each of these technologies are raising very difficult, complex issues. And right now, there isn't really a forum within society to have a conversation between industries and between communities and society about what the implications of that are. And that's certainly something that we've tried to do. But it does feel that that sort of needs to be a concerted effort going into the future. And then the last thing that I would say, which in some ways, for me, probably one of the greatest influence in terms of working at this intersectional space is um, Herman Hesse's The Glass Bead Game, which is basically a story about the coming together of different forms of culture, particularly music and mathematics. Um, And one of the things that is speculated at the end of this report is the idea that an entirely new kind of tech sector emerges from this like interplay of art and advanced technology. And I think that that is a very exciting and interesting idea. And it's certainly something that I've tried to produce and, and work with in terms of what I've been developing at the Serpentine. But I'm also not entirely sure that it will emerge from institutions. It's quite possible that it will, will emerge from a, places that you really wouldn't suspect. In some ways, I to end I'd like to go back to the start of this conversation because I suspect that in the mind of lots of listeners now and certainly in my mind is what are the economics of this because we if we are entering into a really unprecedented economic moment how can how can this in a way is this going to need to fund itself and are the infrastructures in place for a cultural movement which can find funding which isn't reliant on those traditional models are you sort of optimistic that there are the resources for this to happen in the way that you've just speculated i mean there are lots of different avenues for it and they all come with different strings attached of course so i think 
you know, one thing that's that's happening right now is that uh, states are having to issue large bailouts. Um, there is a necessity for a kind of new deal. And so there's there's going to be kind of vast investment. And there's a, the critical question here is like whether that is an investment in preservation of what we already have or it's an investment in a, a rebuild and a rearticulation that takes on all of the changes that have happened in the last 30 or 40 years. I think it's probably obvious what I think. <laughs> it's also evident that increasingly the tech sector is prepared to be a patron to the arts. Um, but that, like I say, that comes with different strings attached. And I don't think there's a kind of uniform expectation from one large technology company to the next. But certainly in terms of the ability to fund kind of cultural programs, if not a willingness, you know, you only need to look at the stock market to know that the, you know, the top five tech companies in the world represent most of those stock markets now. So there's certainly the capital there to do it. And then the third thing I would say is that I think on a kind of more grassroots um, individual level, it's already happening. So all of the people that I you know, many, many people in my peer group are already pivoting their model um, in terms of building online subscription models, Patreon, um, people now beginning to produce merchandise around their practice. And I think one of the areas that is like underutilized there is rethinking intellectual property. Um, so currently the intellectual property model around the arts is primarily focused on the exchange of objects where the artist maintains the moral rights for that work. There are many, many, many different ways that you can produce derivative forms of your intellectual property. And that's something that the, the art world hasn't engaged in to any kind of great extent. And I think it's an area worth exploration. And, and whilst I believe in the aura of the object, I also don't think that it diminishes the value of the artwork to produce derivative forms of it. Ben, there's so much food for thought in this report. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast to explain, even if it is just the tip of the iceberg. Great. Thank you. You can find the Future Art Ecosystems report at serpentinegalleries.org, where you also find the archive of the Serpentine's excellent digital commissions. Coming up, we talk to Simon Sharma about Turner, and we hear about the CETA programme in the States. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. A new survey of more than 750 museum directors in the US has confirmed that one out of three institutions may shut down permanently as a result of financial troubles related to the coronavirus pandemic. As Nancy Kenny reports, the American Alliance of Museums survey data, collected throughout the month of June, verifies early projections of the economic damage wrought by the shutdowns of thousands of museums across the country since March. The survey found that 33% of museum directors believe there was a significant risk of closing permanently, or that they didn't know if they would survive the economic crisis. An anti-racism campaign launched by a 20-year-old British student has led the prominent British photographer Martin Parr to stand down as the artistic director of the first Bristol Photo Festival, Tom Seymour writes. Mercedes Baptiste Halliday has driven an 18-month protest against a photography book edited and promoted by Parr. The book, a reissue of the 1969 series London by the Italian photographer Gian Buterini, includes a street portrait of a black woman published next to a picture of an imprisoned gorilla at London Zoo. Baptiste Halliday described the book as appallingly racist. In a tweet, Parr wrote, I fully acknowledge the highlighted spread is racist and I'm sorry for the offence caused. 
And finally, the artist Keith Sonnier died on the 18th of July. As Gareth Harris writes, the American artist was at the heart of the burgeoning post-minimalist art scene in the late 1960s and early 1970s in New York, and is best known for his light sculptures and innovations with neon tubing, a linear material that enabled him to, quote, draw in space. A major show of Sonnier's work featuring recent acquisitions will be hosted by the Deer Art Foundation at its Deer Beacon space in upstate New York in the spring of 2022. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Christie's 20th Century Sales present unique opportunities to acquire works by some of the biggest names in modern, post-war and contemporary art, as well as by icons of design, American and Latin American paintings. With live and online auctions through to the 21st of August, Christie's invites you to browse and bid on works by Richter, Nara, Gokita, Schaaf, Dubuffet, Avery, Rockwell, Botero and Tamayo, striking prints by Stella, Warhol and Katz. Explore the standout offerings by the leading innovators of American craft, French Art Deco, Danish Modernism and Italian Modernism. Browse the sales, explore the works in rich detail and read about the highlights at christies.com auctions 20th century. Welcome back. Now, in Simon Sharma's new BBC Radio 4 series, Great Gallery Tours, he takes us on a journey around four of the most esteemed collections, the Courtauld Gallery in London, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, the Prado in Madrid, and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. But when we asked him to choose our work of the week, he chose a painting in the Frick Collection in New York, J.M.W. Turner's Mortlake Terrace Early Summer Morning from 1826. I spoke to him on the line from his home in New York State, and you can see the painting as we discuss it at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. Simon, let's begin by talking about your gallery tours. It, uh, these are obviously great museums, but they also are museums that have a personal resonance for you. Is that why you chose them in particular? Yes, exactly right in, in, in those cases. I think um, Susan Mulligan, the producer, and I both thought that quite apart from giving people a sense of closeness to a few of the masterpieces, we didn't want too many because then you spread everything too thinly, we wanted to actually talk about what the museums meant institutionally and socially, really, to the communities in which they're placed, whether it's the Prado in Madrid or the Whitney in New York. But So it's an extension of thinking about why it is we all miss the actually being inside a great gallery or a museum. Um, for me to think about those that had really shaped my life, you know, in one way or the other. And that that's why the pick was, what well, is what it is, really. Um, the Courtauld was a place where, you know, I just stood in kind of stupefaction in front of that uh, Cezanne landscape. Um, I, I think because so much is going on, it seems to still painting, but there's such compositional genius the rhyming of the uh, pine tree with the uh, with the, with this adamant mountain in the background was just the beginning of it, and it 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 it's a optically extraordinarily hypnotic painting. So, one always thought of Cezanne as you know the father of us all, as Picasso said, as somehow a kind of avant-garde outlier, which paved the way for Cubism because Cezanne, particularly late Cezanne, was so in love with breaking scenery down into facets, literally into like the facets of a gem. But that seemed to me not to 
guess at the depth and profundity. Anyway, that was why uh, that, that, that was why the Courtauld, and I first saw the Courtauld when it was just in the kind of office block along with the Warburg in Woburn Square. And the other three places also have meant a lot to me, the Rex Museum, because of my long um, and loving relationship with pretty much everything Dutch. And the Prado, because uh, Prado was, was less, goes back, less really um uh more recently which is say about 30 35 years um prado was a place i really started filming i i gave a particularly naive and crass reading of las meninas which you really don't want to do in a series called um art of the western world and it and other presenters will probably confess that when you're in a panic because whatever you say is going to be fatuous compared to the complexity of the painting you're talking about you tend to go on as I'm going on now, Ben, length le- forever, really, about it. So I have a mix of reverence and embarrassment in the Prado, and I, I've been back filming a lot. And the Whitney is, is my, I think, my favourite museum, although I do love the Frick, which we're about to come to. Um, it's certainly my favourite museum of modern art in, in New York, and it's had this spectacular rebirth in its, in its new building. So, yeah. That's great. Let's talk then about about this this particular painting because I mean, if you are choosing to going to choose one from, I mean, the Frick has an embarrassment of riches like all those museums that you just mentioned. Um, I was slightly surprised that you chose this image, and so let tell me why 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 Turner's view of Mortlake? Homesickness, in a word. Uh, there are indeed extraordinary Vermeers and Rembrandt and so on, but. This little painting um, by Turner, done in 1826, um, which is a painting of an estate, it's quite a small estate, by a a rich brewer called um, William Moffat, who, if not a friend, certainly knew Turner very well. Turner was living at Twickenham at the time. Um, Is my kind of dream of the London I miss. Turner did... um, view they were done for Moffat twice over there's its pair which he showed um at the Royal Academy in 1827 and actually painted the following summer um is in the National Gallery in Washington it's incredibly it seems to me kind of almost painfully ironic that the two pictures which sum up um everything I love about London summer when the sun is shining which it has done a lot um, are both in the United States. And th- this is also, um, I suppose, it's, it's, a, it's an intimate Turner, this one in the Frick. Um, you know, one thinks about Turner in the 1820s, very well established, famous in demand, as an epic painter, slathering on the oils, um, huge epic scenes, um, stormy landscapes, both on land and sea. But this is him in the... One always forgets he, he was sent to his uncle in Brentford as a kid. Um, the river was so important to him. So he can do this sort of sense of the personal sweetness of the city, I think, beautifully well. And, of course, he's a great watercolourist. And the other reason I really love this picture and its twin, but I think if I... It had to choose, you know, one of the two would be the morning because of its kind of dewy, blonde quality of light. Um, This is a painting which kind of almost abolishes the distinction between watercolour and oils. The oils are so thinned out, they're the nearest thing you can, you know, imagine, actually, to 
to a kind of radiant watercolour tone of which he is the great pioneering um, exponent, isn't he? So there is a kind of fit between this being a painting about water, about the water of the glowing, gorgeous, radiant, numinous Thames, even in the kind of, you know, no sign of drowned dogs and cruddy sewage, <laughs> which probably was floating past Mortlick at the time. So it, it, is, it is, on my part, um, just shameless escapism, memory, my childhood memories of the Thames, not particularly at Mortlake, but Turner's taken such trouble. You know, he could do this with just an instinctive dab and push of the of a of a delicate, probably squirrel hair brush to uh, show us the reflection of the wharf buildings and warehouse buildings and private houses on Mortlake. There's a, a lighterman in a ferry boat in the middle of the river. But it is the light above all. It is this extraordinary wash of blonde, peachy morning light, um, which is so gorgeous. And very. It, 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 it can't but put one in mind of Wordsworth's beautiful poem composed in 1802, lines composed on Westminster Bridge, you all know it, everybody, but actually not published till 1807, where Wordsworth, I'm going to forget the words now, but he talks about... Um, the glitter of the morning, you know, the smokeless air, that line I can remember. He talks about the smokeless air of London. So this is London before, you know, those belching chimneys had got going. And there is much more, there's a lot going on in this, you know, deceptively simple view. One of the things that really strikes me when I'm looking at it is how redolent it is of so many of those watery views that Turner painted. So I, I, find myself looking at that view over the river and instantly thinking about his extraordinary studies of Venice in, in all those different media. And, and you know, he, he's, he brings all of that experience of taking in light and water into every, every it seems, every next picture, doesn't he? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. It, it is a kind of, um, it is much more Venetian-like. Um, but if you remember also in the middle of the 1820s, he's making a lot of money, he has to, out of views of Britain, of Scarborough, for example, coastal views and waterfalls. And he's also at that time doing these incredibly in-demand albums, really, which are intended to be prints of the Rhine and the great French rivers. And those are all incredibly operatic. They're not my favourite Turners at all, actually. They're full of kind of dizzying, abysmal chasms and gorges, as you would, I suppose, with the Rhine. And they're all very, very kind of full on, you know. It's the kind of... I know you and anyone listening to this probably doesn't think of me and the word understated in the same sentence. <laughs> but <laughs> I actually do love the kind of delicacy and gentleness of this very kind of intimate scene. It's a country, it, it's, it's a suburban house, it's a villa, it's called a villa, and it is like a Venetian villa, or, or a villa in Holland on the, on the Vecht River. It's very, it's relatively modest. We kind of see a little, it's a Palladian house, we see a little colonnaded porch facing onto the river, beautiful little steps with iron railing going down. And it's all very kind of charmingly reticent almost. It's, it's not a kind of swaggering residence at all. Um, and it's called The Limes, and we see some of the lime trees in, 
in the 1827 evening um, summertime painting in National Gallery in Washington, um, he, he, he actually chose the view from inside the house. So you see everything is reversed and you see the full column of the limes. But the limes themselves are old trees. One of them in the Washington painting is kind of being strangled by ivy very decoratively. We can actually see ivy going up the house in this. They're kind of old and gentle and kind of it's a tea party really line of trees and it, it's among the many illusions if you think about what's really going on in England in the middle of the 1820s it, it is horrible it is poverty and riot and machine breaking and anger and the king is a kind of bloated monster of idle debauchery and self-congratulation it's George IV and so it's a terrible place to be in um, I will leave the comment, you know, there. Am I talking about contemporary England? Heavens forbid. No, I'm not. So this is the opposite. And it's a kind of one of the sort of idols in, in the picture is that of class. We have two toffs, probably one Mr Moffat, leaning on the parapet, looking out in this dewy morning light onto the river. And then we have, you know, work, labour, but it's the gentlest labour. What's the gentlest labour you can imagine? Of course, a gardener. And the gardener is has has partly cut this lovely lawn, kind of velvety lawn that goes down to a path, right, running in parallel to the river. And uh, but he's he's got more work to do, so he's sharpening his scythe. He's standing there, and as with Turner, you don't really see his face. He's only very summarily indicated. There's this long wooden-handled scythe. He's sharpening it, and there is a wheelbarrow in front of him and a besom brush. So that you know all the tools of honest work are there, really. But it's it's the gentlest and you know, um, the, 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 the most comforting view of labour that you can possibly imagine. So the whole thing is a fraud, really. But it's a gorgeous fraud in which to sink if you are stuck in Donald Trump's America in particular. One of the things that strikes me with you talking about how somehow he managed to achieve this extraordinary synthesis between the watercolours and the oils here is that is this whiteness and the way that it makes me think of the way he uses the whiteness in of the paper in the watercolours to to create that extraordinary effect. And, and, and that is an extraordinary quality in this picture, isn't it? This this blanched quality, but yet utterly utterly real evocation of light <laughs> it is i think we've all walked through this you know gorgeous dewy morning light really and he's a great engineer of absorption i think in the watercolor isn't it i mean he he dabs and stains and blots and does all those wonderful things i mean it is really he's living he's not the only one you know there's Gertin and people like that and my great hero actually of watercolor experiment is john robert cousin so i think he's really one of the absolute greatest artists England has ever produced. So I will oversell him to you in the hope of sending people back. And there is a story connecting um, Turner with John Robert Cousins. When Turner was very young, he was sent, and I'm forgetting the name, he was part-time doctor, part-time drawing instructor. One of the very first things he did was to be sent to um, colour tint 
Prince after John Robert Cousins, who was oh, two connections actually. John Robert Cousins went mad and was in um, um, in in Bethlehem Hospital for the Insane as the place where Turner would eventually send his mother. So anyway, that's a sort of an aside about Cousins. But I think Turner inherited from him this extraordinary sense of what you could do with differentiated absorption between watercolour and paper. And then he took that, really, so to what you might do with oils from, you know, he went, he sort of a bit like Beethoven in a way, his contemporary, and that he could go from maximal furious expressionism with those troweled-on paintings like Hannibal crossing the Alps and so on to this, to, to this kind of thing, which was repeated at Petworth, I think, as well. I mean, Petworth is both uses his very thinned-out, dilute emulsions of paint, and he can also use, you know, the kind of full-on impasto style. So, um, you know, he has an extraordinary... He has an extraordinary sensitivity to the range of tone, I think, Turner does, um, among all his other pieces of genius. And of course, there's also that that element that we always talk about when it comes to Turner, because the unfinished works seem so proto-modern, but yeah. also Turner's avowed intention to be a great classical artist. And again, you see this even in this very modest picture. You see that 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 utter connection with Claude, which is which is so dear to him, and which we see yeah, obviously manifested right. in the National uh, Gallery. Yes, Claude is Claude is, as he says, you know, incredibly important and very touchingly in the bequest in the hands of John Ruskin, insisted, and, and in the terms of the Quest National Gallery to Eastlake, insisted he be hung with Claude. I think that's right, isn't it? But the other influence I am bound to say, of course, is the Dutch. It's a great irony that um, John Ruskin, the executor, hated Dutch painting so much. And in particular, he hated the works of Albert Kuyp, um, notwithstanding the fact that Turner actually does enormous paintings specifically titled after Kuyp, like, you know, the Dordrecht painting. But Kuyp also, um, as well as, I suppose, Jakob Reisdell, but one thinks particularly of Kuyp's um, manipulation of paint to create this kind of, you know, blonde luminousness really that that clearly Turner you know was aiming for and and as you just said Ben really um, it's a painting that does a whole lot with an ostensibly modest format and subject matter and um, yeah that that was a very important part of 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 Turner's repertoire. Let's talk about being stuck in Donald Trump's America. I'm sorry to to, to bring well, you, you to your to, reality, okay. but but um, but I mean, obviously, in America, museum, you know, this series actually began as lonely works because we were we we wanted to give love and attention to works that we knew were sitting in empty galleries. Actually, most museums throughout the world are now are now open. Yeah, but obviously, so in, obviously in the states, that. that's not that's not the case. Um, no. So so uh, it must be extraordinary for you. I mean, here you are, so vividly talking. about about this picture and you vividly talked about these galleries it must be odd for you to and you you're in the place which is least open up where museums are still shuttered tell me about about how you're feeling about all that i know it i i well i'm um annoyed really i mean not uh, well, not annoyed is is too strong a slightly bemused and baffled by it because there's no reason why the met for example even the grandest or indeed the whitney um, shouldn't have masks and social distancing and be opening. And I I literally don't know um, whether or not there have been discussions. But I tell you what, uh, my hunch and guess here 
is that New York is now in a very special position, along with some of the other great cities, Philadelphia and Boston, and I guess Washington too, maybe not so much, in that it looks much more like Europe. It, it, um, the governor and the mayor, about whom people have mixed feelings, including me, did succeed in, with, a fairly, with a very brutal lockdown very early on in flattening the curve. And um, we have very few cases and even fewer fatalities going on in New York right now. So on the other hand, we get kind of headmasterly warnings from both Mayor de Blasio and Governor Andrew Cuomo about backsliding. And, um, you know, if you let things relax a bit, which, which has happened, we are ostensibly in so-called phase four. I live up in the suburbs about 30 miles north of the city and where there's nothing that can't open. But there's um, if, if, in fact, there's suddenly kind of partying on the streets and the equivalent to Friday night pub crowds in London, we've had very stern warnings that it can all go terribly badly wrong, as is happening in much of the rest of the country. We're not cut off. That even though Andrew Cuomo has said, well, we're going to actually um, stop cars with out-of-state plates um, you know, it's, it's impossible to enforce that or people flying in from a high infection rate state like Texas or Arizona or Florida we're going to put them straight into quarantine it's completely impossible to enforce and it was rather ridiculous to say that but there is a kind of high degree of nervousness I think on the other hand you, you know if people are allowed to you know sort of sit in tables outdoors in front of restaurants in Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan, you would think there'd be, a, a, you know, there'd be some easier and more considered approach to opening the great art galleries. I wish there would be. OK, well, Simon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. I had fun. I had fun. can listen to Simon Sharma's great gallery tours wherever you are in the world at bbc.co.uk. If you're in the UK, they're on BBC Radio 4 on Mondays at 4pm. The next one, on 27th of July, features the Prado. And you can read more about Mortlake Terrace early summer morning at frick.org. Now, you may well have heard of the Works Progress Administration, or WPA, the Depression-era programme in the United States which employed hundreds of artists and led to great public works of art, but the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, or CETA, is less widely known. A bipartisan response to the economic crisis of the 1970s, CETA was arguably the largest government arts funder in history. At its height, its jobs training programme was putting around $200 million a year, or $800 million in today's money, into the pockets of artists, arts organisations and community partners. As unemployment in the US soars, with around 36 million people without work by the end of May, could CETA provide a blueprint for a response to today's crisis? Our senior editor in New York, Margaret Carrigan, spoke to two veterans of the CETA programme, Virginia Maximowitz, an artist and professor emerita in the Department of Art and Art History at Franklin and Marshall College in Philadelphia, and Blaise Tobia, a photographer and writer who's professor emeritus in the Department of Art and Art History at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Margaret began by asking Virginia why CETA might be a model that's more accessible than the WPA. First of all, it was bipartisan legislation. And it was signed into law by Richard Nixon. And it was able to be 
supported by Republicans because of its structure. It was block grants to states, so it was decentralized. Also, it was a jobs program that didn't initially include a section for hiring artists the way the WPA did. It was designed mostly for community service. Artists figured out how to use the program. And given our current political situation, it might be very difficult uh, to sell uh, to the American taxpayer a program that would fund the arts. But selling a program for job creation, I think people are going to want and need. And then finally, we think it's an important model because everybody from the WPA is dead. But many of the artists, project administrators, and even people at the Department of Labor who helped craft CETA, they're still alive. And we really feel their expertise should be tapped now. Mm -hmm. As to why it is less well known, I mean, um, right there in the fact that it's decentralized. It was decentralized, right? There, there was no central authority that gave it an identity that, that basically created uh, its, its methods of operating. Um, 50 separate states, 500 different authorities actually handled CETA money at one time or another. And there is no central archive. The, the WPA projects are, are archived at the Smithsonian. Um, there is no central archive whatsoever for the CETA projects, for the arts projects. The largest one is for the, the CCF project in New York, and that's 55 boxes worth, but that's not really a good picture of the entire you know, operation that, that employed over 10,000 people over mm -hmm. that seven-year period. So that, that's one part of it. Another is that it was service-based from the very beginning. It was seen as jobs. Artists were seen as workers. Uh, we worked a, a regular work week. We had good benefits, as in health insurance and in vacation time. Uh, but we had to be there. We had to show up. We had to do the project that was outlined for us. Uh, yes, we got one day a week in the New York project to do work in our own studio, right? But even that was checked on. Uh, some of our administrators actually came around, visited our studios, talked about the work. Uh, some of Virginia's work got stamped with made under the CCF CETA project, right? So it was serious. But on the other hand, we kept the work. It was shared copyright. Uh, in the CCF project, and it was not collected into a central warehouse the way the Federal Artist Project works were collected. That was considered to be government property, for better or worse, right? And a lot of the work in the WPA produced public art, very visible public art, whether it was murals or sculptures, uh, or whether it was plays that were performed. And that was not the case in most of the CETA projects. Now, even though in many municipalities there were public works and often they took the form of murals but again because they went through local community sponsors people didn't realize it was part of the CETA artist project and or a CETA artist project um, and many of those murals have disappeared but some haven't for example the great wall of Los Angeles Judy Baca's great you know, LA History Wall, that was CETA funded. Hmm. And when I went to see it many years ago and uh, we taught about it, I had no idea it was CETA funded, but it came through all of these community connections. Um, there are murals that have been restored, 
Uh, in New York, we lost some of the public artwork uh, twice in the World Trade Center, the, the first bombing and then when the towers fell. Uh, but some still exist, like the Clark Street mm -hmm. subway station. But most people have no idea how that uh, ceramic mural got in Clark Street. Now, just picking up on that as well, um, the Chicago project, which employed about 100 artists a year over a five-year period, was largely mural-based. Lots of murals were done. Uh, often, though, they involved community input and were not just the product of the artist. So there was a more collaborative kind of approach. And uh, many of those murals, I, I was in Chicago in 1988 for quite a while and, and saw lots and lots of murals. There was no indication they were made under the CETA project. I only found that out later. So from the point of view of, of PR for itself, we'd have to say the CETA arts projects were kind of failures. Uh, mm -hmm. They just didn't have the kind of uh, propaganda that, that, that the FDR-based, you know, Works Progress Administration had in place to sell everything to the public. Well, I'd like to speak distinctly about the CCF project that you guys were a part of, um, because that was the largest CETA program. And like you said, it is the most well-documented at this point, even though there were CETA programs supporting artists in, you know, dozens of cities across the U.S. So how did you guys find out about this kind of CETA program and the CCF, and how did you get involved, and what kind of work did you do while you were in it? Well, I have a great anecdote about that. Blaze and I had uh, just returned to New York. We got our MFAs in California, University of California, San Diego, and uh, we were actually living in a spare bedroom at his parents' house, and we were visiting my mom's house, and my uncle was reading the Daily News. And he yells out across the living room, hey, ladies in Virginia, there are jobs for artists. Look at this. It was a tiny announcement in the New York Daily News. And, and you can still find these announcements if you do the research and um, go to newspapers.com. And uh, we hightailed it down to Brooklyn Borough Hall, got the applications, uh, it was quite a rigorous review. It wasn't just filling out an application. You needed your slide portfolio, letters of reference, all sorts of documentation of your income, of where you lived, what degrees you had, and then we had interviews. So we both managed to get jobs. Blaze managed to get a position, uh, and he was on the documentation team. So he started January 1st, 19. 1978. And I was an alternate, but I must have been relatively high up on the list because I started two weeks later. But it, it shows you how, how tough it was. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had very different experiences the first year since I was on the documentation unit. I had a very privileged kind of uh, place in the project, meaning that I got to travel around and see it in great detail. I visited dozens and dozens of artist studios. I went to lots and lots of musical and dramatic performances. Uh, I covered the openings of exhibitions. Uh, I met with and interviewed various administrators and community leaders. So um, it was a great, great first experience for me as a professional you know, out of school, for one thing. But it also gave me a fantastic appreciation for the scope of the project, you know, and, and how many artists it was serving. 
Uh, Virginia, on the other hand, you know, immediately went into community service assignments. And I did everything. In fact, I, I did write down a list because there were so many different things. Uh, I worked in elementary schools in the South Bronx, uh, different parts of Brooklyn and East New York, uh, after school programs in the Bronx and Brooklyn community centers. Uh, I worked with kids to uh, create a ceramic mural uh, near Story Avenue up in the Bronx. Um, I was assigned with a group of other CETA artists uh, on a very interesting project where we essentially built the Brooklyn Arts and Cultural Association's downtown performance space, Baca Downtown. And uh, it was the old school of St. Boniface Parish. And uh, do you remember how many of us were there? About Maybe. a dozen. About a dozen artists. We did everything. We stripped wallpaper. We painted the walls. We built a stage. I did a mural that was sort of transitional between the church and the new Baca downtown because it was a courtyard. Uh, Susan Scher, I think, did the bathrooms. Mm -hmm. um, but that actually became a pretty major venue. Uh, people like Susan Laurie Parks uh, got her start there. Um, and I think it's one of those bits of forgotten history that that was the CETA artist project. And then I, I also had an assignment um, that was renewed several times at the New York Botanical Gardens. In, in the Bronx. Our, at the way the CCF project was structured is we were assigned for a three-month period. A community group or a nonprofit had to request us, all right? So it was kind of like a matchmaking type of situation. I used to kid it was like uh, secretarial temp agencies, only it was an artist temp agency. But if you started working on a project and the sponsor wanted you again, they would re request you. So you might get another three months. So I had one assignment at the New York Botanical Gardens for a year. Mm -hmm. And the assignments weren't necessarily for the four days of the community service part of your week. You might have two or three assignments, you know, two days at the gardens, one day at a grammar school, one day at a community center. Mm -hmm. But to also, you know, to, to talk about the project in a slightly larger sense, part of what was just so amazing to us about the project, number one, it was a fabulous first experience for two of us right out of graduate school, because we got to learn about the real art world. We got to learn about how artists really work and survive and relate to each other. Um, plus, it was incredibly, incredibly multicultural, uh, multi-geographic, uh, Open, you know, non-age discriminatory, about equally uh, made up of men and women. Uh, it, it was way ahead of the curve in terms of doing all those things to bring together as diverse as possible a group. And part of that was that although it had one foot in the art world, it also had one foot in the labor world. And it was actually the Department of Labor's rules that had to be followed. And at that point, there were already pretty stringent laws about, you know, equal opportunity and, and so forth coming out of the Department of Labor. So the, these projects were, were designed in a way that, that met those criteria and met them well. But it also meant that those of us in the project got to meet lots and lots of people that we would not otherwise have met, people outside of our own particular closed communities. 
and gave us just a lot of appreciation um, for the variety of people that made up the art world in New York, certainly. And as we've done more research about projects around the country, it has become very, very evident that African-American, Latinx, uh, Asian uh, women artists benefited greatly from CETA funding and especially in some of the institutions. There are a lot of uh, black theater uh, groups around the country still going and they started with CETA funding. And dance companies or here in Philadelphia, the Brandywine um, Print Workshop which is a well-known, primarily African-American oriented group, you know. Um, so it was a way to funnel money towards African-American visual and performing artists in a way that, that hadn't existed previously. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights on this. It's such a fascinating program, and I really hope that something like this could be in our future, <laughs> given the juncture we're at currently. You can read more about CETA at the website that Virginia and Blaze have put together at CETA-arts.com. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Julian Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing. Thanks to Simon, to Ben, to Margaret, Virginia and Blaze. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week for the last of the present series. Bye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Thank you.